It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. So you guys have decided as a new show policy, I only want listeners who have voted for us. I only work with or f- or for or around people who have personally voted for me. Well, what is what does voting for rational security mean? I want loyalty. I want absolute loyalty. If you what, listen five to stars. Uh, five stars. Every honest time. loyalty or absolute loyalty? I want Instagram. <laughs> 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 I want an honestly loyal review on Apple PlayTunes. Actually, it's wait. <laughs> hang on a second. I would totally go for a dishonestly loyal review. <laughs> I think like, Actually, we don't like, like there are many venues in which I uh, really expect honesty, but Apple Podcasts not one of them. But I didn't vote is not an answer. Right. No, if we if we ask you did you vote for rational security? Who did you vote for? And you don't say rational security? You're we're fired. Done. We're just done. You're not getting the permanent position as a listener. <laughs> You'll forever be the acting deputy listener. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Did You Vote For Us edition. I'm Shane Harris, raspy reporter. I'm a little raspy today. Forgive me. The last gasp of winter. A little bit coffee, a little raspy, put on some drugs. I mean, nothing that's going to affect my Not performance like more drugs. than usual. You know, guys, you, you could have just been a little raspy and husky, and it would have added like a, a frisson to Yeah, it. it could be. It could be like but Kathleen Turner was hosting the podcast. Yeah, but now you've related it to viruses. And oh, it now everyone's gross. It. Did I ever tell you the story about when I met Kathleen Turner? No. Who, her voice sounds like this like times 10 now. It was great. She was coming. She was giving a talk at the Cosmos Club. And I swear, like, nobody knew who she was. No way! I mean, I think they knew, but you could just generally tell that, you know, that they were, uh, you know, people were kind of not really paying attention. And uh, she was up at the bar, and she was getting ready to get herself a drink. And you can't actually pay for your own drink there. A member asked to buy it for you, so I just swooped right in. And I was like, hello, Mr. Turner, may I be a drink? That would be lovely, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I said, this is my husband, Joe. And she sticks out her hand and goes, hello, Joe. (laughs) So that's going to become a thing in our house now. She was awesome. Hello, Hello, Joe. Joe. I think that's awesome. You're most welcome. She was great. Um, Kathleen Turner is not here today, but Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes, and Tamara Goffman with us are. Hello, everyone. Hi. Can I be the deputy acting (laughs) rational security? I would vote for (laughs) Kathleen Turner. (laughs) Given your voice, you can be the deputy acting Kathleen Turner. That means I approximate Kathleen Turner a little bit. Well, we're going to get to questions of voting and who you voted for in our show today. Up on the podcast, FBI Director Christopher Wray resists administration pressure to clean house at the Bureau. Bob Mueller's Russia probe interviews Jeff Sessions and talks to Jim Comey. And Rex Tillerson presents a new U.S. strategy in Syria. You might have missed it. <laughs> it's entirely possible. In, in all the excitement, <laughs> you major know, U.S. policy. Major U.S. foreign policy, whatever. I think I maybe covered on the wires, maybe. Um, let's start. We're going to have a pack a lot of things into these first couple of segments. So let's start with the news that um, Axios first broke this story that the FBI director threatened to resign over pressure to get rid of Andy McCabe, 
uh, who is the uh, the deputy FBI director, who is planning to retire in March. Um, it's been reported, um, and uh, this kind of set off a you know a, a round of, of stories about the administration, specifically Jeff Sessions and the White House, continuing to put pressure on Chris Ray. Uh, with regards to his personnel decisions and trying to get rid of Andy McCabe uh, because of this perception on the president's part that he is some Democratic partisan. Uh, we can talk about that too. Ben, let me just start with one basic question. Is it or is it not the prerogative of the director of the FBI to staff the bureau essentially how he sees fit and to pick for the deputy and other top positions the people that he wants? Yeah, so it is absolutely um, and actually – Historically, it would be quite irregular for uh, anybody outside the Bureau to have much to say about how the Bureau is staffed. That's, uh, I mean, really, it's a paramilitary organization with a director on top, and uh, how it is staffed underneath it is is really a matter for the director's discretion, um, subject mostly to norms, by the way. Um uh, as so many things are, we're finding. Yeah, as we were learning all about the norms that govern us through the process of watching them being breached. Um, and so I guess the first point is it is wildly bizarre. But doesn't that cut both ways, right? So yes, it's up to the director. So it's bizarre that there'd be this external pressure, but also not that unusual for a new FBI director to want to make personnel changes, yes. right? It is customary. So, 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 right. I mean, the idea that over the first year of his tenure, a new FBI director like Chris Ray would bring in his own senior management team is completely ordinary and unsurprising. The, the group of people around Jim Comey was a group of people uh, – you know, selected by Jim Comey to be his senior management team. And nobody uh, thought he had, you know, some obligation to, uh, you know, preserve the Bob Mueller senior management team. And similarly, nobody, I don't think, and nobody reasonable would begrudge Chris Ray building uh, his own senior management team over time. The oddity of this situation is that he's doing it under fire, including from the president, uh, who is demanding that he clean house for political reasons. And so whenever you make a move under those circumstances, you don't know, is it because Andy McCabe wants to retire in March? Is it because you're building your senior management team and you want Dana Bente to be your uh, general counsel? Or is it because uh, you're... Uh, placating uh, the sort of cry for scalps from Jeff Sessions and, and Donald Trump. And so I think there's three streams of input into these decisions. Right? One is the natural uh, tendency of people to leave jobs eventually and want to move on. One is the desire of the new director to build his senior management team. And one is political pressure. And we don't know really what the balance of these are. Two of them are entirely legitimate and one is entirely illegitimate. So just to play out that third piece a little bit, I think what's striking in the reporting this week is not the public dimension of the political pressure, which we've seen the president tweeting about Andy McCabe. We've seen members of Congress publicly, you know, spinning all kinds of conspiracy theories about partisanship at the FBI and so on. 
what's striking here is the depth of the behind the scenes pressure that was apparently being applied. And in particular, the willingness of Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, rather than being the, the kind of guardian between the White House and the FBI, actually his willingness to carry water for the president in bringing political pressure to bear on the FBI. That's what's the news here, right? So I, I think that is right. I mean, look, I think we should acknowledge that, you know, Chris Wright is in an unbelievably difficult position. And it was always going to be that way. And he has sort of this extra job. I mean, all FBI directors are sort of guardians of the Bureau's independence, but they're he has, he's in kind of an impossible place. Um, you know, so that said, I think he deserves a, a lot of credit and praise, you know, assuming that sort of the uh, the threats to resign, sort of drawing a red line over Andy McCabe and saying, you know, I'll resign over this. Uh, I think that's admirable. I think uh, Ray recognizes he really only has one card to play, which is sort of uh, resignation, um, you know, the, the kinds of uh, political pressure that would uh, place on the president. And, you know, the White House has sort of acknowledged in the wake of this story that uh, that they get that Ray resigning would be sort of catastrophic to them. Interestingly enough, um, this was the same t- card we talked about Jim Mattis and, and even Rex Tillerson having to play sort of early on, um, sort of query how does that play out. And so in some in some circumstances, I think Ray has has behaved really admirably in difficult situations but not in all circumstances, right? So even if he intended to bring in his own senior management team, you know, when the president is tweeting against the general counsel of the FBI on sort of on, on you know, sp- false and specious stories, that's not the moment to reassign the general counsel. Actually, even if you were planning to already, because the mere optics alone is going to mm. sort of raise this issue. And so it seems like he's sort of trying to play a middle ground as opposed to just drawing the line at do not mess with FBI independence, period. Sessions, the White House, none of it, or I will resign. And instead seems to be sort of deciding which hill he's willing to die on. And so I don't know. We're still sort of midway through or early through whatever this story is going to end up being. But I'm not quite ready to decide whether or not his performance in total is a good one or sort of a medium one because I think at this point it's been an inconsistent one. Ben. So I actually have a question for Shane. Um, my question is, do we know when this conversation that you guys reported last night between McCabe and Trump took place? Uh, it's it's described in the story as um, having taken place shortly after the firing this is uh, the who did you vote for? The who did you vote for conversation. Right. Where McCabe was in a meeting with Trump and and the president asked, among other things, who did you vote for in the election? So the reason I'm asking this is that um, by the end of that week where, where Jim had been fired, McCabe goes up to Capitol Hill and contradicts the White House, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, about – the relationship between the bureau and Comey, and uh, contradicts the president. You know that, um, and I think it's a really interesting question whether that testimony took place before or after this meeting with Trump. Do we know the answer to that? I don't know the answer to that. The other reporters who were working on the story might, but I think you're right to point out that it occurs in this moment when. 
the president is clearly already suspicious of Andy McCabe, right? And is essentially asking his own form of, you know, will you be loyal to me? Which he's asked, in, uh, you know, he asked it of Comey uh, as well. Um, and I'm, I have no doubt that McCabe took it that way and probably saw it as inappropriate. So going up to the Congress and whether it was before or after this, I'm sure that the president must have read that testimony in Congress as this guy is not going to be loyal to me. This, uh, the story strikes me as quite different if the meeting takes place before the testimony than if it takes place after the testimony. They're, they're both really interesting stories, but they're different stories. So one is the president fires Comey. Then quickly thereafter, he has a meeting with McCabe in which he puts political pressure on him. The White House makes these outrageously inappropriate public statements. And McCabe, knowing about this personal pressure that the president puts on him, goes up to the Hill and publicly contradicts the White House, must have been fully expecting to be removed if that, you know, when that happens. Um, does it knowing that he just had this interaction with the president, right? The other version is McCabe goes up and gives this testimony uh, and then sometime thereafter has a meeting with the president in which the president effectively confronts him and says, who did you vote for? By the way, I hate your wife. Um, and, you know, I think there's like either way, one person who has acquitted himself extremely admirably in this, and I just say this, I do not know Andy McCabe, um, is Andy McCabe. Um, and this is somebody who, you know, whatever one thinks of anybody else's performance, behaved with really steely uh, uh, guts and uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of what we ask for in 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 our public servants and looked the president in the eye after he had already fired Jim Comey and uh, and said, I'm not going to answer, you know, I'm not, I'm not going right. to give you the loyalty you want. I mean, as we're sort of evaluating this as part of Trump's pattern of conduct, which I think Shane's point is important and interesting, right? This is basically the same thing he did with Comey in, in expressing an inability to grasp or understand the difference between personal political loyalty to him and, you know, loyalty to the office, loyalty to the Constitution. I also think it's worth noting that McCabe wasn't only under pressure from Trump. There actually has been a coordinated effort, particularly out of Congress and the Judiciary Committee. Grassley has had it out for him. Tom Cotton sort of right as, uh, you know, that the apex of rumors regarding, you know, whether or not McCabe was on his way out was Tom Cotton saying, I'd be surprised if he's here next week. Right. So this this really, to the extent we're seeing an assault on the FBI's independence, it is not only coming from the White House. It is coming from Senate Republicans as well. Can I just and say Devin Nunes and House Republicans? too? Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's it's definitely a pretty well coordinated campaign on the Republican side to discredit the FBI or at least to set up a frame in which anything the FBI produces is suspect in in a partisan sense. And I think that to me, that's what's most troubling here is that dimension, is that <clears throat> the broader political battle, the FBI is now becoming a wedge issue, a football mm -hmm. that partisan actors are using Democrats are, you know, demanding the unfettered independence of the FBI. And Ben, you called it a paramilitary organization a few a few minutes ago. Whether or not that's an appropriate or apt description, it's one that's 
liable to cause anxieties um, amongst some folks on the left and then on the, you know, or some folks who love liberty. And and the FBI, you know, has been through a whole series of reforms to put a check on the the um, danger that an organization with this much authority could potentially pose in a democratic society. And then on the right, treating the FBI as a tainted, slanted, partisan, you know, creature in order to discredit the results of impartial investigation. And I, there is a reason why the FBI is this football. And the reason is Jeff Sessions, because what protects the FBI, what enables it to remain impartial is not at the end of the day, the FBI director. The, at the end of the day, it's the attorney general, the civilian supervisor of the FBI. He has to be that firewall. He's the one who has to mediate between the leadership of the president and the law enforcement, the impartial law enforcement functions of the FBI. And Jeff Sessions is refusing to play that role. And that's why we're in this world. I think it's just really important to understand that the FBI is a subject of controversy, not because of anything the FBI has done, but because of what the attorney general has failed to do. Um, let's move on to our second related topic. So more movement in the Mueller probe. Uh, it's been reported that Mueller interviewed the Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, uh, which I think was probably not terribly much much of a surprise, but nevertheless was he was really what happened. Then he's and that the Why are you such office, a squish? <laughs> <laughs> that would be my question. You think Bob Mueller's like, I got one question. <laughs> Um, and Mueller has, Mueller's office has talked to Jim Comey, but it doesn't sound like it's a formal interview. It was more talking to Comey after he handed over the the famous memos, the contemporaneous memos that the former FBI director wrote after his meetings with the president that troubled him so much. Um, so maybe just bouncing off of, of tomorrow's point, Sessions, I think, very well taken. I mean, he could stand up right in the middle of all of this and tell everyone to back off, say to his former colleagues in the Senate, like, back you know, off. back off if he wanted to, which also then raises, I think, a question, obviously, is does Sessions not want them to back off? Uh, and pursuant to our first round of discussion, what was the president telling Sessions to do uh, to get the FBI to stand down? So I guess this is a long way of asking, is Sessions being interviewed as and talked to as a conspirator in a plot to obstruct the investigation? Uh, is he a fact witness? I mean, how should we be reading this, you know, let's remember a rather extraordinary moment when the Attorney General of the United States is interviewed by the special counsel who is investigating the campaign for which the Attorney General was a senior advisor. And is now recused. And is now recused because of that. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, you have to take a step back and realize Jeff Sessions could be all of those things because Jeff Sessions is actually involved in all of it. He's part of the Trump campaign's foreign policy team. He's in meetings in which George Papadopoulos has said that he reported these Russian overtures. Although Sessions in that meeting, as far as we know shut down the possibility. Sure, but then said he didn't recall it later, right? right? right. So had sort of what most people would say was a memorable interaction and then didn't disclose the interaction. He personally had meetings with Sergei Kislyak, the you know, the the famous, or I guess the non-famous, the, the utterly forgettable right. Sergei Kislyak. Um, by the way, not good hair. 
<laughs> well, really, that's your beef with Syracuse. <laughs> Maybe that's just where Washington is now. Maybe we're just a city of bad hair. I just mean, look at the, the commander in chief. Like, I think the guy deserves the Time Magazine Man of the Year award. I <laughs> can't like, believe we're talking about this. But I don't like his hair. Um, but no, that's fair. That's fair. Um, right. So then he, uh, you know, uh, I don't want to say uh, lies in his testimony, but um, omits uh, uh, these meetings. Um, fails to fails to disclose these meetings on his security clearance forms. Um, he's then intimately involved in the Comey firing. Now we learn, you know, from recent New York Times reporting, not just in sort of authoring this memo or directing Rosenstein to author the memo, but also in this sort of pre-ground game of trying, you know, to produce one negative story about Jim Comey in advance. Then he is um, he is the target of sort of some improper conduct whenever Don McGahn, so keep all of this, you know, in all of this context in which he really is central, making the question of recusal, like, beyond a foregone conclusion that he should have been recused from the Russia investigation. You have reports that the president directed Don McGahn and Don McGahn actually did contact Jeff Sessions to pressure him not to recuse in the investigation. So Sessions is in some weird way at the center of absolutely everything. I think, one, that means that Mueller interviewing him is not some giant, you know, bombshell revelation. Of course Mueller was going to interview him. The question is sort of, what questions did he ask Sessions and and to what extent does that reveal, like, are they interested in the substance? Are they interested in obstruction? Do they view the McGann overtures as part of this? Like, what is, I, I would think that that interview would be incredibly revealing yeah. and we don't know much about the substance, just in terms of like, where are Mueller's people at. If you saw the list of questions, yeah, it would almost be like, you know, the thing that unlocks. It would be like you the, get that the list, Rosetta Shane. Stone. You go grab that <laughs> yeah, list. Right. I'll okay, get yeah. right on it. <laughs> but do, I mean, does it, doesn't it tell us something about the overarching kind of where is Mueller in the investigation? Because as you say, Susan Sessions is such a central figure. And usually these investigations work around the edges and right. go toward the center. So if they're interviewing Sessions, does that mean that they're close to the core of this? And has signaled, by the way, and we've reported that wants to interview Trump, and they're now hashing out what the ground rules and the questions categories are going to be. Right. Got so it. Ty Cobb wasn't wrong that they were wrapping it up by the end of the year. They were close. Well, hang, hang on. Hang on. Oh, you meant this year. Oh, oh this year. I didn't mean this year. Oh, Somebody <laughs> tweeted the other day. I forget who. I mean, a uh, year. Somebody tweeted the uh, I, I don't remember who tweeted that Ty Cobb had emerged from his uh, from the White House, seen his shadow, <laughs> gone back in, and that meant there were six more weeks of the Mueller investigation. Oh, um, so I thought that was pretty special. He does have that mustache like that guy who holds up <laughs> to Tony Phil. So I, oh, Ty Cobb. I think there is actually reason to believe that the investigative phase of the obstruction component of this investigation may be reaching an end. So there's a few reasons for that. One is there's only four bodies of data relevant to this investigation, right? There's the documents at FBI. There's the people at FBI. There's the document at at the White House. There are the people at the White House. And there's no other body of information of any consequence. I mean, there's on the obstruction piece. On the obstruction yeah. piece that is uh, going to be directly relevant to this. I mean, isolated people in the in the Justice Department, particularly Sessions and Rosenstein, 
Um, but uh, by and large, it's a it's a discrete set of individuals and and documents that. And so, what do we know about the Mueller investigation in this area? Well, they collected all the documents. They've systematically gone through and met with all the people, and you do that in ascending order of importance. And so, in the last few weeks, they've. Uh, met with Comey, they've met with Sessions, and now they're talking to, uh, getting ready to talk to Donald Trump. And that strikes me when you put all that together, uh, it does look like there's a discrete investigation, the investigative components of which are probably relatively close to finished at this point. That does not answer the question what you are going to do with the investigative results of that investigation. And it seems to me there's three possibilities and I, sitting here right now, uh, I have no idea which is one. So if you're Baghdad Cobb, you um, you are. Uh, I was just waiting for you to do that. You're I was going to do it if you didn't. You're really confident that the result is going to be a statement of exoneration. Let's, let's retape. That should be the name of the show. Let's just delete everything we've got. Um, you know, you, you're really confident that the that Bob Mueller has been doing all this work assiduously in order to issue a statement clearing the president of any misconduct. Um, so one possibility is that you actually do all this investigation and then there's nothing there and so you go home. Second possibility is that you actually bring an indictment. I think that's unlikely for a lot of reasons. But the third possibility is that you make a report, uh, make a report to Congress. Uh, and I think that is probably where this is headed, although I have no basis for that other than the sense that I don't think that Baghdad Cobb is quite right that this is all about clearing the president. And I'm suspicious that an indictment is probably not appropriate here. And so I think that tends to leave you with um, with uh, making a report to Congress, laying out what the conduct at issue involved. Oh, these midterms are going to be so much fun. Can I ask a question on that? And I think you you totally well laid out all the buckets of information and the obstruction piece. But what about the conspiracy collusion piece? I mean, would he go to interview Trump before he was, could he go back to him and talk about that? Do we assume that he's only going to talk to Trump? about the obstruction component? Well, so I, I think to answer that question, you would have to know a little bit more than we do about what the connective relationship between the underlying investigation and the obstruction piece is. Um, there are times when special counsels or independent counsels have multiple matters within their jurisdiction that are so discreet from one another that you can close one while still investigating another. And the, the most famous example of that is Ken Starr, who mm-hmm. had, I believe, four distinct investigations under the Starr investigation. There was the original Whitewater stuff. There was the famous FBI files investigation. There was the White House travel office investigation. And then there was the Monica Lewinsky investigation. And these were all four different investigations all being done by the same office. And they issued separate reports on each of them. And they just closed them as they finished them. Um, And 
Um, and so if you imagine that the obstruction investigation is really discrete from and distinct from the underlying collusion investigation, you could actually imagine him saying, OK, let's lop that off. Let's finish it, whatever direction it's going. And then we'll, you know, we'll deal with whatever residual issues there are in the context of the collusion investigation and maybe some other matters separately. On the other hand, and if, interview the president again if you need to. Yeah, yeah sure. That's oh, yeah, wow. but that seems like going back to that well again. It's going to be so hard to get him the first time. Uh, so I, I actually think people are overstating that. Huh. Um, I yeah. think if you, um, if the special counsel has an active investigation and needs to interview the president, he will get an interview with the president. And the reason is because he can slap the president with a subpoena, and. He will win that litigation if there's actual need. But he also knows that, I mean, the president would react with this by like, you know, here they come again. I mean, he, Bob Mueller's, I guess what I'm saying, I, I hear you, but I don't think Bob Mueller is ignorant of the political wall that he is having to, over, to climb over to get to that point. And it seems like he would be very reluctant to go over it again. I, I also think we should keep in mind that Trump is a different president for interviewing right. purposes, right? His staff, whatever sort of bluster they're giving off in public, his staff must be terrified of him sitting down because there is a long history of Donald Trump saying things, demonstrably false things under oath. And I do think it's plausible to imagine that if he's in an adversarial questioning situation and feels uh, cornered or attacked or, or otherwise disrespected, um, he might not understand the importance of strictly adhering to the truth, uh, you know, because he can't do it in an interview. And I, and I don't know that he can internalize the risk he might be placing himself at. Look, I agree. It is also possible that this is the terminal interview of the entire investigation. Um, my guess is that that's probably not the case because um, there's still outstanding charges against Manafort and Gates. And I think you probably wouldn't want to wrap up the whole thing until you had figured out whether either of them is going to cooperate and if so, what they have to say. That said, it could be that none of the collusion stuff actually touches Trump personally. Yeah. And so you might be willing to wrap it up without talking right. to him. And he may have determined that already. Um, all right, let's move. Let's pivot away from Russia and go to the other... Uh, I suppose Russia kind of is involved in this story to some degree. It, it is, although in a Syria. rather different manner. Yeah. Um, tomorrow, the Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, has presented a new U.S. strategy in Syria. Um, a little strange, maybe, that the Secretary of State is presenting our, our military strategy, but maybe not so without precedent. But um, this story uh, clearly did not get enough attention uh, in the past week. So tell us what he like, said. Tillerson? Syria? I don't... Right, he, wait, we have a policy in Syria? There's a I've secretary of state? <laughs> right, good point. He sounds familiar. <clears throat> yeah, I think I've heard of him. So it's actually been an interesting few weeks for Rex Tillerson because he's given several speeches over December and January. Uh, he gave a speech on... Uh, the Korean Peninsula at the Atlantic Council in December. He did a speech at the Wilson Center on Europe. Um, this one seemed to be a little bit short fuse. Uh, there was not a lot of publicity leading up to it. Um, I found out about it a few days ahead, and all I knew is that the Secretary of State's going to give a speech on the Middle East. Nobody really knew what that meant. Just the general concept. Right. Um, and, uh, and then... 
he showed up at the Hoover Institution at Stanford uh, after a little swing through Vancouver uh, last week. So last Wednesday, he was at the Hoover Institution. It turned out what he was rolling out was a significant policy announcement by the Trump administration, which is a decision to essentially uh, keep American forces uh, in Syria indefinitely or in a conditions-based way, which for anyone who watched the Bush administration in Afghanistan knows means forever, potentially, um, and uh, and to lay out what American policy objectives were in deciding to keep American forces in Syria and why Americans should care about this, which is, wow, the Secretary of State is actually talking to the American public about foreign policy. This is in some ways a major departure for Secretary Tillerson so far. So it was interesting to me that in all the hullabaloo of our crazy news cycle, this speech got almost no coverage. Um, it has significant implications, I think, for U.S. posture in the Middle East, for our broader debate about the use of force and what we're doing with our all-volunteer military, with the future of the war on terrorism. I mean, it's really quite important. So here are a few highlights. Um, number one, that America has a clear defined goal for its overall policy in Syria, a stable, unified, independent Syria, free of terrorist threats and free of weapons of mass destruction. Good luck. Yeah. Got that, everyone? That that should be doable. Aspirational, guys. Um <laughs> Specifically, there are five conditions that the United States is looking for in Syria and that we will keep our troops and our assistance programs in place to try and achieve. We want no ISIS platform for attacks on Americans or our allies. Good luck. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. Uh, number two, um, the conflict between Assad and the opposition needs to be resolved in favor of a stable, unified, independent Syria under post-Assad leadership. So the Trump administration has not backed away from the Obama administration's rhetorical goal of getting rid of Assad. Good luck. Number three, Iran's influence in Syria will be reduced. Good luck. Not eliminated, also not defined particularly, but somehow reduced. And we'll, we'll talk that about it. That seems what. like a sufficiently fungible term. Yeah. Number four, that the conditions are in place for the voluntary return of refugees and IDPs. A very important uh, condition to set when the Trump administration itself is facing a near-term decision about whether to... Uh, end temporary protective status for Syrians and require them to go back to Syria. Good luck. And number five, a Syria free of weapons of mass destruction at a moment when the regime continues to use chlorine gas in bombing its own civilian population. Good luck. Ah, uh, yes. So we're all very optimistic. And, and, and just policy. to be clear, these five conditions to which a reasonable person might say good luck leading to the one large condition to which a reasonable person might say good luck. These five constituent pieces are predicates for the withdrawal of you. Like we're going to have forces in Syria until those five unobtainable things are obtained. Well, exactly. <laughs> and you should feel good about that. Um, and you should also... Putting the F in forever war. Right. <laughs> that And that was the reaction amongst a lot of 
um, veterans, people who cover military affairs. I do think it's worth emphasizing that this isn't a military-only strategy, although it is a military-forward strategy. There is a big assistance piece uh, associated with this, and Tillerson explicitly said that we're going to be ramping up the presence of our diplomats and our aid workers in Syria. But of course, both the civilians and the military are there against the will of the sovereign government of Syria, only able to operate in places where the regime does not have control. And, um, and therefore, in a way, are there with big targets on their backs for opponents of the U.S. presence, including Iran. Um, and, you know, those of us who remember the dark days of the Iraqi civil war know just how effective Iran was at targeting American forces in Iraq when we were there in a conditions-based way. Uh, and so for a lot of people, this really feels like um, we've seen this movie before, and it bodes ill because, you know, we don't even have what we had in Iraq and what we ha- and in Afghanistan, which is a government that wants us to be there. I mean, what do you sort of read into the the process clues here. I mean, that's one thing we've talked about a lot over the past year. Um, you know, is there a functioning national security process? What role is the State Department playing? Um, you know, is there a coherent strategic vision? You know, we talked a little bit about the national security strategy recently. Um, the reemergence of Rex Tillerson, I guess. I, I think that this qualifies. I mean, do you, uh, you know, reading the tea leaves, do you sort of view this as okay? We're we're returning to something that looks like like normal order, in which there's a national security strategy, and then it's followed up, and there's these articulated goals, and there appears to be some sort of coordination. Or are we still in this world of kind of bizarre one-offs where you don't really know is Rex Tillerson speaking for Rex Tillerson? Is he speaking on behalf of Rex Tillerson and maybe Jim Mattis, the administration, sort of where, what's your assessment about what this means for where we're at in that sort of broader sense? Right. So I don't know. I don't have any specific insight into the interagency process if there was one that produced the speech. But I think that what we can say is that the 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 American counter-ISIS strategy has been from the beginning of the Trump administration a bit of an exception to the rule of no process and policy incoherence. Um, this is, you know, the the fight against ISIS on the ground in Iraq and Syria has been coordinated by Brett McGurk at the State Department, but tightly, tightly coordinated with the military, with CENTCOM and the Defense Department. And so to the extent that this Syria policy is in many ways, an outgrowth of that anti-ISIS fight, um, and it does emerge from that trajectory, then I think there's been good state defense coordination. I don't think it's at all unprecedented or surprising for a secretary of state to roll out a strat, a foreign policy strategy that combines military and diplomatic and assistance tools. That's actually normal. It's not normal for this administration. Um, And I think it's also not normal in a context in which, you know, a month ago, everyone was expecting Rex Tillerson to be gone by now. And, um, and I think among other things, the fact that they put together this policy, and he was the one to present it, I think is a strong, strong indication that he's not going anywhere. All right, let's move on to object lessons. Who'd like to go first? Um, well, I, I guess I'll go. <laughs> I can go first with my object, which is bizarre. Um, oh, I like those the best. But 
it's, um, you know, I, as a Middle East specialist, it's regionally themed. And also, it's an aspect of the Middle East that you don't see a lot from the outside, but which is really, really important. Every now and then you'll see a news article about how, you know, Gulf Airlines will allow you to buy a plane ticket to bring your hunting falcon on the plane with you, right? Um, or you'll see an article about robotic jockeys for camel races. These are aspects of uh, Arabian Peninsula culture in particular that are really, really deeply rooted and that people don't get a lot of insight into from the outside. Um, folks on the Arabian Peninsula love their falcons. They love their Do camels. Do you guys not have hunting falcons? I, the closest I ever got was I had a hunting falcon perch on my hand in a hotel in Doha. They actually brought the Falcon to the hotel so that those of us there for the conference could share in their culture by experiencing the Falcon live bet, and up close. I bet Mitt Romney has a hunting Falcon. Well, we- a special he, elevator for them. <laughs> <laughs> one, he one he of, has horses, we know this. One of my favorite Guantanamo uh, uh, Bay stories involves um, uh, actually a serious Al-Qaeda guy who um, uh, professed at his review hearing that he had gone to Afghanistan, uh, uh, where in fact he had joined up with Al-Qaeda uh, to indulge his love of falconry. Uh, that's, yeah, that's, so, so my object lesson. <laughs> Which we derailed into a falcon-based discussion. It's not a falcon? No. Not interested. It's not, it's not a falcon. It's the other animal that uh, folks on the Arabian Peninsula really invest a lot in, which is the camel. Um, and camel races are a big deal, but also camel beauty is a big deal. And uh, believe it or not, there is a beauty contest in Saudi Arabia every every year for the camels. They do have those lovely lashes. Um, and, <laughs> and this year, uh, there were 12 camels that were disqualified at the last moment from the annual Saudi camel beauty contest Why? because... Their owners used Botox injections <laughs> to Poor improve camel. their appearance, oh. thereby breaking the naturalistic rules <laughs> of the camel beauty contest. Can I just say that I think it should be okay to use Botox on your camel? Of course, it if it be. makes it more beautiful. Listen, these camels put up with can so you, much already. Can you do plastic a little surgery eye track, on your little camel? Facelift? I mean, look, we don't disqualify in human beauty contests. I'm just we don't have a like a no work rule, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, why should it be? Are I'm, you I'm perplexed as to why, like this, the sort of paralyzed forehead and the, like the no like wrinkles in the face thing is is a, is a signifier of camel beauty. Okay, so it seems like they're sort of like projecting camel, onto an this. awake camel. I love this. It's not about wrinkles, and if you think about it, this animal has fur, right? So would you even see wrinkles? It's actually about their their adorable little mouths. Camels have very full lips. They're known sometimes to spit at people they, they do not disgusting. like. Um, but the 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 camel pout is a very important oh. component of camel beauty, and you could use the Botox to make those lips stand out even more. Can I just say that when I think of beauty and animals, <laughs> there are like many animals oh, that I on. think are beauty beautiful. Camels? They have these big, dark eyes. They have long eyelashes and these long noses. They're very Cammy's, elegant. Tammy's all in on camel It's all beauty. the face, though. Just don't look at the rest. 
This <laughs> is the classic butterface. <laughs> <laughs> or I guess the reverse. Right. Awesome. Imagine camel tinder. Like, <laughs> it all be close-ups. <laughs> wow. I like it. Okay. Um, does anybody else have objects? I have one. I can't. How, how could we possibly follow up? I'll just, I'll just flag something for everyone. It's, it's a decent object. So this, is, this was new to me. It's, it's a new show. You know, I like to come on and recommend... Uh, movies and shows I think will be interesting to rational security listeners. If you haven't seen Godless on Netflix, check it out. So good. So good. It's a seven-episode limited series, which means it'll be just those seven episodes, then they're done. Um, and I know everyone's thinking, oh, yeah, another Western. or uh, I'm told if you liked Deadwood, by the way, which I've not seen, you will like the show. But the themes, I don't know if they precisely meant to do this show right when they did but the themes are kind of weirdly resonant even though this takes place like ungoverned spaces ungoverned spaces like the role of law and order police abuse race relations the role of women in society the underestimation of women is a huge you know part of of this show, and I'm not going to give away anyone the ending, which is glorious. Um, but it's also just really, really good and like totally binge worthy and just an awesome show that people on this podcast will like. A Me Too Western. Kind of. There's an element of that. I don't want to overstate it or give too much away, but like, let's just say like it is untypical in the, in the way that women are um, figure in the narrative and in a deeply satisfying and really fun, compelling way that kind of makes you like say yeah that's good all right that brings us to the end of the podcast oh <laughs> oh pouty phase <laughs> we would have gone longer if you voted for us yeah. <laughs> no you voted for it's we're, we're right just the right line you know just to put a point on this i love that the chairwoman of the rnc asked about this incident where trump um, inquired about McCabe's voting preferences, said, well, Trump was just trying to get to know him better. Like, oh, that's God. always the question I ask <laughs> people. Your classic first date question. Yeah. Right. Who did what you did vote? You Where did you grow up? Who did you vote for in the you last know, presidential when, election? When I first met Susan when she was a law student and was interested in getting involved in lawfare, the first question I asked her was, who'd you vote for? Did you vote for me? <laughs> and, and can you guarantee personal loyalty? That's right. Yeah. That's, That's normal. Obviously, what you would ask somebody in those circumstances. I don't see what the big problem is. Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page on the webs. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. Uh, whenever you download the podcast, please remember to vote for us with a five-star rating and a review. It really helps us out, and we appreciate it. Our audio engineer is Matthew Kahn. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Jeff Sessions, who is leaving his job as the Attorney General to form a new hot jazz trio, the Pouty Camels. <laughs> yeah, oh, excellent. I love it. <laughs> that would be a good... That, that sounds like a hot jazz trio. I want to hear him Jeff singing Sessions and the Pouty Camels. Camels. Yeah. All right, I like I it. I like it. He's gonna, it's, it's your next step, General Sessions. Um, and Sophia Yan will gladly play backup, uh, as she always plays solo for our music. On behalf of our show, on behalf of my good friends, Tamara Coffin Wittes, Ben Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week, and hopefully I'll sound a little bit less like Kathleen Turner. Bye-bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.